0: Turn with me in scripture to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Then I looked, and behold... A lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpers playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him. For the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, He himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which has poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap. The time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire, and he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles, or 1,600 furlongs. May God add his blessing to this reading of his word. Well, we come now to the third section that I intend to preach in this section of Revelation chapter 14. Last time we heard about the fate of the unrepentant sinners, and it was a terrible fate. It is beyond the comprehension the wrath of God and it's being poured out full strength without mixture in hell no one who is ever persecuted on this earth these martyrs who are crying out for justice no one who has ever suffered loss or been persecuted will ever say when beholding the fate of the damned they'll never say that this was not just that justice has not been served no they'll, they'll see it they'll know it And then we were reminded of the fate of believers, that it is a wonderful fate, and we'll read more about it today. Really, this is the ongoing cycle of Revelation, isn't it, from saying, it's telling us the end, the happy ending of the believers and the unhappy ending of the the unrepentant sinners. And we're seeing these things yet again today. It's an amazing eternity. It is a great fate, something to be greatly anticipated. And this, the wonder of heaven will make us to forget, the word of God says. All of our troubles on, on earth. Not that our troubles are meaningless. They'll be remembered before God. We'll have our exact reward. That's even better. It's not that it's forgotten, but rather we ourselves will forget the pain in that sense. We ourselves, because of the magnitude of the glories of heaven... The troubles that on earth are not worthy to be compared with that which is going to be revealed for us in heaven. That is what lies ahead. The the, the question, I suppose, then, is what is our attitude now? What is the connection between the way we are thinking and living now and what is going to happen in the end? Is that connection activism? Some think so. Some I think that this idea of Christianity is a, an escape hatch into heaven whereby the gospel is preached and those who put their faith in, in Christ, that their great understanding is that they may have trouble on earth, but, but praise God they'll be saved and they're going to heaven and that's what really matters. Well, they say that's a terrible idea. It saps our energy for social activism and we should be going out and making heaven on earth. If we try hard enough, we can transform this, this world and this culture and make it better. Is that the connection that we need to make? I don't think so. We're certainly called to be faithful witnesses. And we're certainly called to work in our vocation, which inevitably means whenever Christians are faithful in their vocations, the world is going to be a better place. But the picture that we get in Revelation is that that doesn't make much of a difference in the grand scheme of things. The picture that we get in Revelation is rather of a world given over to the authority of the beast. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. And this, again, is nothing new. This is Satan's authority that he has from the moment of the the fall. We ourselves as a whole human race in Adam handed over authority to Satan. We don't want to listen to the word of God. We want to listen to your word, Satan, tell us what to do. And he has retained that authority until the end. And therefore, no matter how much social activism we might have, it's not going to make much of a big difference in the grand scheme. That is not not the substance of our hope. That is not the connection to what lies ahead. We're not building that reality bit by bit now. That is what God is going to bring about in the end. Well, what about another? What are we supposed to do then? Is our attitude then stoicism? Is it that we should just let these things happen? Because they know they're, they're going to happen. You know, Stoicism is when you're consigned to your fate. Whatever is going to happen is going to happen. And you don't really care. You don't invest yourself emotionally too much one way or another. Because that only leads to disappointment. Things are going to go wrong. And you might as well be stoic as we say. Oh, no, it's very clear from the word of God that we should care. It's very clear that we must care and I don't mean just in our sinful reactions to things because it's very often it's, it's very possible to have a sinful uh, reaction in a way that stirs up anger and hatred towards things that we see in the world that's not what we're talking about but even in our sinless reactions like the martyrs in heaven you think about what, what, what happened in Revelation chapter 6 these people are in heaven they are not capable of sinning. The reaction that you see is a sinless reaction. And what do they say? They cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? It is very clear that they care. This is no reaction of a stoic. They are not simply accepting this. And the answer given to them was not, Well, why are you sitting here underneath this altar? Go out and bring justice yourself if you want justice. Go do some justice and mercy ministry. And the answer was not. It wasn't that, and neither was it. Why do you care? It's not in your hands to fix it. So why do you care? Just be stoic about it. Bad things are going to happen. Don't let it bother you. No. None of these things were the case. The answer was, what's the answer? That they should wait a little while longer. Until the full number of God's people were brought in. Because God Himself is long suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all might come to salvation, all of his people. And so the answer for them and the answer for us is patience. It's patience. It's neither the the social activism that imagines that we can actually bring about this eschatological future and where everything is put right, and nor is it a sort of stoicism where we think it doesn't really matter. And we shouldn't care one way or another. No, it is a patience. A godly patience. Where we pray and we wait. And we know that God will bring all things to rights. Well, that's the subject of this morning sermon. The patience of the saints. And We'll cover in these three points. First, here is the patience of the saints. Second, faith and obedience. And third, blessed are the dead in Christ. Here is the patience of the saints. Faith and obedience and blessed are the dead in Christ. Well, then our first point here is the patience of the saints. If we read it in verse 12, here is the patience of the saints. And it is bringing about, it is bringing to mind what this patience is like, what the what the description is. Now, this is the second time that we've heard this. Uh, we've heard this phrase in the previous chapter, in chapter 13, verses 8 to 10. All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with a sword must be killed with the sword. And what does it say? Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. You see, the situation is rather grim. The Bible is not mincing words. It's not saying like we sometimes say to our children, I don't know if we should say it, that it's all, going to be, it's all perfectly all right. Sometimes it's not all perfectly all right. Sometimes we need to acknowledge the reality of the pain and suffering that they, like we, often have to experience in this life. This situation there is grim. Everyone on earth is going to worship the beast except the elect. There's going to be fierce persecution. Persecution which these churches in Revelation, the seven churches to which it was originally written, have already experienced. Yet it is made clear that God will eventually judge them and save his people. And what is our situation? What's the attitude? Here is the patience and faith of the saints. And now we have here in Revelation 14. Very similar situation, isn't it? If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or in his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. God is going to judge them. They're not going to get off lightly. Far from it. But not yet is the thing. They must be assured. If your question is, will they receive justice? The answer is yes. They will receive it completely. If you're wondering if they're going to get off lightly, please don't worry about that. Your God is a God of justice. He is a God of holiness. And not one sin that has ever been committed will ever not receive its fullest recompense. Whether on Christ or whether on the sinner. They're not going to get off lightly. But in the meantime, here is the patience of the saints. We are going to have to patiently endure what the world throws at us in the meantime. And indeed, as we've seen even in in our intermediate state in heaven, as we await the general resurrection and the judgment day, even still there is patience required as we wait the fullness of both the recompense and the reward. Now, what do we say about the patience of the saints? Here it is, it's required. This situation demands patience. This situation uh, is the prescription given for this situation is patience. Well, what do we say about patience? Well, first of all, God is patient. Patience. That's part of the name of God in Exodus 34, 6. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. Remember, this is the situation where Moses says, Show me your glory. We talked about this last week. And the Lord says, I will declare my name. And you'll see my glory in what I tell you about myself. Because it's not the physical things that tell us that display the glory of God. It is the explanation of God's acts and his character in his name that display the glory And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. Long-suffering. And that's a very good word for it. Because there is a slight difference. The overall idea is the same, but there's a slight difference between God's situation and ours. Long-suffering is a better word for it when we talk about God's patience. Because God is the creator, God is the judge, and at any moment, should he choose, he could bring the world to an end. He could bring about the judgment. He is the great judge. It is in his hands to be activist about these things. And he is the one that is being sinned against. When we are, are sinned against, it's, it's true that we, but we have to remember that we ourselves are sinners. And it's and so it sometimes would be foolish for us to want to hasten judgment when we ourselves are guilty as everyone else around us. But God's not in that situation. He is constantly being sinned against. And there's no, no sort of situation that balances it with him. But rather he is long-suffering towards these people, this rebellious race. And it's manifested, of course, in his dealings with Israel. It's not just a, uh, a theoretical thing that he's long-suffering. He really was. Nehemiah nine, and you know that Nehemiah is written after such a long history, not just the Exodus and all the rebellions in the desert, not just the divided monarchy and all that, not just you know, and it eventually comes to the Babylonian exile. Now, returning from it, and Nehemiah, he says, they shrug their shoulders, they stiffened their necks. He's talking about his own people, and they would not hear. Yet for many years you had patience with him. He's a patient God. He has demonstrated his patience and his dealings with his people. And I hope, ladies and gentlemen, he has demonstrated his patience with you. I hope that we can all look and say, yes. Yes, it is true. I have seen the patience and long-suffering of God because he has dealt with me. He has dwelt with me. He has lived with me, a sinner, all these years. And I know his patience. God is patient. And surely we must imitate him. We must be patient ourselves. Now I don't know if you've noticed it yet. But that is another theme of Revelation. I I know that there are many themes. It is a beautiful tapestry. When you first look at it. You only see one or two big major themes. But as you come closer. You actually see several threads. That are running through the whole thing. That come up over and over again. And one of them is patience. If uh, you can summarize Revelation in many ways, but one way you could summarize it is to say this is a book about patience. It's speaking to those pe- people in perilous, difficult situations. And it is all about patience. It is telling them what lies in the end and it is telling them to be patient in between. Way back in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, I don't know if you remember. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ... Was on the island that's called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. He's there because he is persecuted. He's there because, for whatever reasons, the authorities didn't decide to put him to death, but instead sent him, exiled him to the island of Patmos, a prison situation because of the word of God. And he says, I'm with you in this patience. And it kind of tells us that that's something about what this book is about. Or in the very next chapter, Revelation 2, 2. I know your works, your labor, your patience. Christ is speaking to his own church. He's speaking to Ephesus, which was probably John's main church. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and I'm commending you for those things. And that you cannot bear those who are evil and tested those who have said they are apostles. And furthermore, not only I know your patience, in verse 2, as if it's not enough, in verse 3 it says, and you have persevered and have patience. He's extolling them for this virtue as a church that they have patience. Or later on in verse nineteen, I with regard to Thyatira, I know your works, love, service, faith, and patience. This is a book about patience. We must be patient, like God Himself is patient. And what it says in Hebrews six eleven that this is a part of walking by faith. This is a part of our reality in Christ of those who have put their faith into something they cannot see. It requires patience. Hebrews 6.11, We desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply you And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. We live in a world of the instantaneous, don't we? We imagine that everything that is worth having can be had at a moment in time. And sometimes Christianity is presented in similar ways. It is is sold, it is marketed in a sort of instantaneous thing. It is all designed to bring us to an instantaneous decision. I don't mean at all to say that we should not come to a decision to put our faith in Christ. We must do that. But of course, the reality is, it is not those who once said they made a decision that are saved. The reality is that those who put their faith in Christ and remain believing in Christ and following Christ and are still doing it at the end of their lives, those who endure into the end, the book of Revelation says, are saved. Those who endure to the end those who patiently endure when our example is given to Abraham it is pointed to one who patiently endured to receive that which he did not have it was not that he for a moment in time said oh I believe you Lord and then afterwards departed from that faith yes of course he was a sinner yes of course he wavered in various, he, he wavered a little bit in one sense in other ways he didn't waver though With regard to the main picture of believing that the Lord was going to do this, he believed it. And he kept on believing it until the end. He was patient. And Hebrews says we must imitate him in that patience. God is patient. All the notable saints have been patient and we must be patient too. Secondly, when we're considering the patience of the saints, we must consider this related issue of faith and obedience. As it says in verse 12, here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Because I don't want to give us the impression, as much as patience is important, as much as it's a theme of the Bible, it is not the central core thing, it's not the only thing, it's not even the main thing. It is rather the correct response of Christians who are primarily characterized by these two things of faith and obedience. Those are the primary things. If you just want to summarize what a Christian looks like, you know, if you wanted to... uh, Summarize what a magpie looks like. You say, well, this bird is both black and white. And you say, "That's, that's a great summary of what a magpie is. Well, how do you describe a Christian? What are the two things? If you only had two things to describe them, what would you say? Well, it's those who believe in Jesus and those who obey the word of God. It's pretty simple. Faith and obedience. Those are the two things that primarily characterize a Christian. If you see someone who believes... And has evidence of that in their, their obedience? You say, well, th- that's a Christian. If those things aren't there. Well, that's a big question, isn't it? So there's faith in, in Jesus. It says those who keep the commands and the faith of Jesus. And I think that the word, the faith of Jesus, happens in, in two guards, two senses. First of all, and, and obviously it is that they have saving faith in Christ, the gospel. That's the essence of being a saint. Those who have been, what is it, a saint, a holy one, a set-apart one, one who's been washed in the blood of Christ. And how does that happen? When you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are saved. You are washed in the blood. You become a saint. But notice again that this is a participle. And what that means is an ongoing thing. It is described in another way of saying those who are keeping the faith is the way that this would be more literally translated. Those who are keeping, not the people that at one time in the past walked an aisle again, but that the faith is an ongoing reality. The question is not whether you can identify some point at which you put your faith in Christ. Maybe that is great. Maybe it isn't. But that isn't the main thing. The question is right now. Do you right now have faith in Jesus Christ? Do you right now believe? And do you continually believe until the end? That's the issue. Ongoing faith in Christ. Well, that's one sense of that faith in Jesus. The other sense is an orthodoxy. Because it is the faith of Jesus, the one true Christian religion. And that's really important in all this context, that we see that the whole strategy, the whole point of the beast, what is he trying to do? The the point of the beast is not to set up first Church of the Antichrist of Gateshead or something like that. That's all very up front of what it is. It is to usurp. It is to take over all those things that are called Christian. Anything that you and I would say, yes, that's a true church. Yes, that's a true denomination. Those are the things on the Antichrist list that he wants to take over. Those are the things that he wants to influence. Those are the things that he wants to put his false doctrine into. Okay? We understand that, right? So if that's the case, then it is important that we keep the faith of Jesus. Here is the patience of those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, not the faith of the Antichrist, not the compromised faith of the false prophet, but the faith of Jesus, the one true Christian religion. And that's why it is so important to guard the deposit of faith. That's why it's orthodoxy, ladies and gentlemen, is not something to be assumed. That is the deadly error. It is something to be fought for. In every generation, not, not just once in a while, but every year there is a fight going on with some aspect of the true religion. And if you are a Christian, if you decide, if you say, yes, I want to, I want to remain in this faith until the end, you must steel yourself for the battles that are yet to come. Because no one is exempted. This beast is out to claim this church for himself. Through the influence of false doctrine. Believe me. The more the reputation for orthodoxy. Either you personally or the church as a whole has. The more it is a high priority to be overtaken. By these false things. We must keep the faith of Jesus. His word. Well, we keep the faith of Jesus and we also keep the commandments of God. You know, our belief in the triune God implies love, doesn't it? We believe in God, it implies that we love Him. We have to love Him. That's the great commandment, isn't it? Love the Lord God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. No one disagrees with that. We all know that we should love God and our neighbor. We love Him because of who God is and, and what He's done, and we simply must love Him. And that love implies obedience. Now I, I recognize again that this is something that is so countercultural that at the sake of, of too much repetition, because in this church, we've heard this more than once. But I must say it again, that faith or love and obedience are not opposed. It's not like these are two different categories of things that if you do one, you're kind of excluding the other or pushing the other away. It's not like that. It is that there is no love apart from obedience. Love is defined by obedience. The great commandment is explicated by the Ten Commandments. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength is explained to us in things like do not covet. If you want to love God. And of course. Loving our neighbor is part of loving God. Now that's the case with Christ himself. John 14.31. But that the world may know that I love the Father. How is he going to. Why doesn't he just put up a sign. He could do that right. He could put up a big sign. I love you Father. Would that work. Is that the great monument. Of the son's love of the Father. Mere words. No. The great monument of the Son's love of the Father is what? That as the Father gave me commandment, so I do arise, let us go from here. And where is he going? He's going to the cross. That the world may know that I love the Father. I'm going to do what he tells me. And that's the case with all of us who follow Christ. Christ. In that very same chapter, if you love me, keep my commandments. It's not by our words. It's not by our putting up a sign saying, I love Jesus. No, we show that we love Jesus by keeping his commandments. If you love me, keep my commands. Those are the two things that characterize the believer. Faith in Christ and obedience to his word. And the point here is that we keep on doing these things, not just once. We keep on believing, we keep on obeying, no matter what. I do not say that these things are perfect. Everyone knows that our obedience is not perfect. We're not perfectionists. We don't think that Christians can be perfect in this world. It's it's not. Our, Our confession plainly says it. It's not. Our obedience is imperfect, and believe it or not, our faith is also imperfect. There are elements, little elements here and there of error in the things that you and I believe, as much as we wish it wasn't the case, and as much as we seek to improve that over time by our study of God's word and of good theology. And there are little flaws in our faith generally in Christ, aren't there? Our faith is not 100%. It admits of improvement, as the confession would say. The point is is that it's there. The point is that it's present. It's it's like a, I I don't know. Um, there are, are certain bi, uh, bio uh, things biologically that are either there or they're not. Is this person's heart beating or not? You could say, well, you know, this person's got a lot of heart disease. There are electrical issues. There are clogged arteries, and this heartbeat is nowhere near what we'd want it to be. But it's there, and you say, well, okay, he's alive. Well, likewise, we can say that our faith may not be what we want it to be. Our obedience isn't quite 100% either, but it's there. This person's a Christian. We keep on believing, we keep on obeying, no matter what, and to the end. That's the connection here. Well, thirdly and finally, blessed are the dead who die in Christ. Because that's the element, of course, of patience, isn't it? Not momentary patience, not patience for ten years, but patience in and through death, all the way there and through it. Blessed are the dead who die in Christ. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Blessed are those who die in the Lord. It is an amazing thing to make this confession if we say this. If you and I say this together and we believe it, blessed are the dead who die in Christ, that is an amazing thing. Because we naturally have, of course, an aversion to death. Death is an alien imposition. It is not the way it is supposed to be. It is not part of the original good creation of God. God created this universe. Don't listen to those who say that he, the, only, the way God apparently created was through death, 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 and more death. An instrument of bringing about uh, Adam and Eve was through untold millions of deaths beforehand. No. He brought into existence a world that was without death because there was no sin, you see. Sin and death go together. Without sin, there is no death. And in the Garden of Eden, there was no death because there was no sin. He built into being a good creation without sin. But after the fall, then we have this new, horrible stranger, this alien imposition of death, not of the good hand of God, the Creator, but a result of our own father and mother, Adam and Eve, and their fall into sin. Yet, because of the work, on Christ, work of Christ on the cross, yet we can say, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. We can say there's an element of blessedness because their sins have been covered and they have nothing to fear in their death. In fact, not only do they not have something to fear in their death because their sin has been covered and that we know that they already are in possession of eternal life spiritually. But there are these specific these specifications of why it is that they're blessed. First of all, that they may rest. Now that's in direct contrast. I please you must see these verses. There's only one next to the other. I know that we're preaching them in segments. I know that there are chapter divisions sometimes. But we must see that that physical proximity in the Word of God is of some importance. Okay. And right in these the, the previous verse. The smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever and they have no rest day or night to worship the beast in his image. That's the characteristic of the beast worshiper, as we saw. That is a characteristic of the wrath of God in hell is that they have no rest. And it's an awful thing. No rest at all, day or night. So many things would be tolerable if you just could have a rest from them. Slave labor is sometimes a bit, is almost tolerable just because you at least get to sleep at night. But the, the damned in hell don't ever get to sleep. They don't ever get to experience rest. Well, in direct contrast to that, in direct contrast to that, we have the saints. That we will rest. Yes, as a spirit, that they may rest from their labors. I love this, the way that the, there's a, almost a dialogue. I heard a voice from heaven, perhaps the voice of Christ, it's it, saying to me, write it down. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. And they may rest. You know, I think that rest is particularly precious to those who have been working hard. It's particularly of, of insignificance to those who have been fighting. And again, in the context of this, of this revelation, you never get the sense that the saints have much rest on earth. They have the Lord's day. One day in seven given to them to rest. But the rest of their life is filled with work. As they've been commanded from the very beginning. And particularly in the context of Revelation. They are fighting. These are they who have not been able to lay down their weapons. They're constantly having to put on the full armor of God. As it says in Ephesians chapter 6. Because the world and the flesh and the devil don't give them a break. They're constantly at warfare. But finally then. In all their hard work. and all their fighting. They are given rest in heaven. They are given rest from their labors. And then. That they are rewarded. I think that's what it means. When it says that their works follow them. They did work on earth. They are now given rest. But those works are not without their signification. In eternity. Yes they have been given rest. But they are also going to be given a reward. Their works follow. Follow them. That's one of, another one of the great themes of the book of Revelation. It's not only that we have patience, but you see there's patience. is not an empty patience. It's leading to the reality of full reward for the people of God. We're going to be rewarded. That's what it says in Revelation 18, uh, Re- Revelation 11, 18. The nations were angry. Your wrath has come and the time of the dead that they should be judged. And what's going to happen at that point? That they should reward. That you should reward your servants and prophets and... And the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, He's going to reward us. Or in the very end of the book, in Revelation chapter 22, behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to His work. When we think of Christ, when we think of the second coming, we should and we must think of the fact that His reward is with Him. And when we as Christians think about the moment of our death, we must remember it is bringing us to the heavenly reward. My reward is with me. And that's, of course, the theme of the, the Bible generally with regard to the way that Christians look forward to the end. It says in Matthew 16, 24, 27, and this is, let me tell you, if anyone says that we should stop thinking of of the, of the faith as an escape hatch into heaven and we ought to instead think about our social activism in this this world, they ought to read Matthew 16, And Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. You're giving up your life in this world in order to have your soul in eternity. And God is going to reward each according to his works. Now, I understand that we could be overly concerned with the details of our reward. I know that. And I'm not saying that we should be. But if the, the Bible is not ashamed to talk about our reward... If it on numerous occasions within the, the, the pages of Revelation is pointing us to the reward. Reminding us that our reward is coming. And that not one bit of it is going to be missing. We say the wicked, they're not going to be missing one last, one bit of the wrath of God for their sin. But those who have put their faith in Christ they will not lose one little bit of the reward that is due. Well then, who are we to say that these things should not be powerful motivations for us to make it through this life in patient endurance. Well, to apply these things specifically to us, I'd say, first of all, that there is rest in Christ because that's the, the opening of it. That's the beginning of it. That's the way we have to... Uh, if you're outside of Christ, that's what you ought to be thinking of. Matthew eleven twenty eight says, Come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Because it's hard work. Look, I've spoken of of saints. I've spoken of Christian people in the work that is given to us. And it is hard work. There's no doubt about it. And we'll be looking forward to our rest. But that is nothing in comparison. I almost regret having built up that picture so much because I much, much more want to build up the picture of those who don't have Christ and who are working for their salvation. Because you you all are, you know that. If you're not a believer in Christ... Your default setting, your situation is that somehow you are working to merit the favor of God. Okay? I think that's even the case for those who claim not to believe in God. There's an element with you that is trying to be good enough. That is trying to earn merit before God or the cosmos or something along those lines. And let me tell you, I hope you understand, it is hard work. The burden of your sin is great. great. And if you want to work that off, you've got a tough road to hoe. Just merely trying to keep keep yourself from sinning. Well, that's an impossible work outside of Christ. It can't possibly be done. And I hope you've experienced it. I hope you've seen how futile this is. I hope you understand that this is tough work. Well, for those who are weary, those who are laboring, and those who are heavy laden with this burden of trying to earn their salvation, Jesus says, I will give you rest. There really is rest in Christ. In order then to have that full rest that we spoke of, you have to rest from your labors at all. You know, that's another way of describing our salvation. It is a ceasing from our labors. That's why the Sabbath day is such a beautiful picture of it. It is a ceasing of our labors. For just one day, we lay down our tools, and we say, we're not going to work. Normally, because our physical life demands it, doesn't it? Normally, in ordinary situation, ordinary situation, I don't mean to say there's exceptions in and, and one way or another, but ordinarily, in order for us to eat, we need to work, don't we? In order for us to continue our biological life, there must be work involved. But one day, in, in seven, we lay down our, our things and we say, well, we're going to rest. God is going to take care of us. That's a picture of us spiritually. That we say that the relationship, the thing that brings us to heaven is not our work. But rather we lay down our tools trying to save ourselves. And we say, God, you alone do this. Christ, you have died and your blood is enough for me. And it's into you that I put my faith. And I say, you have to save me. That's a rest. That's the rest that we have primarily in Christ. And if we're going to have that rest in death, we must have rest in Christ right now. Trust in Christ to save you. Secondly, we must, as Christians, be patient. We must be patient. James is not among the most beloved of some people because we think that it doesn't preach the gospel quite as clearly. That's at least the way that Luther thought. Once we see the great interconnectedness between these things, the reality of faith and obedience, all of a sudden James becomes a, a wonderful, beautiful book. And one of the things that James talks about no less than revelation as a percentage of it is patience. James 5, 7 says, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and not a rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. The coming of the Lord is at hand, so be patient. We're like farmers right now. We have put the seed of faith is in us. And it's going to bring its results. There's going to be fruit. And one day the harvest is going to come fully end. But right now we have to be patient for that. Believe me, the judge is standing at the door. It's a fearsome thing for the sinner. That right now those angels who are set to destroy this earth, are being held back for the moment of the last person being saved. But for the Christian, it's a beautiful, wonderful thing. It's the judge is at hand. He's coming quickly. That's what the Bible says. Behold, I am coming quickly. Therefore, be patient for one more day. For one more hour. Be patient. Finally, be comforted in the hour of death. It's not just an application that is for this single moment of death. I would say we have a religion, this whole religion, for a single moment of death. Because that's what it's designed for. Okay, That's what the Bible itself says. All right, This religion is not designed primarily for our situation in this world. Yes, it provides all that we need in this world. Yes, it gets us through this world, yes, but it is not the primary design of it. It's sort of like, I don't know, comparing the ground-handling characteristics of a, of a car compared to the ground-handling characteristics of an airplane. Yes, an airplane can do it. It has the ability to steer. It has brakes. It can do it, but not very well. All right? If you've ever been on an airplane taxiing, it's not really great at it. Okay, Because... And and if you were to compare those things with a sports car, you'd say, wow, the sports car does better. It's more comfortable on the ground here. And and it gets me to where I want to go in a quicker way than this airplane. But you see, the thing is, the airplane's only beginning. What it's really designed to is to to get you off of this ground and to fly you into the air, to someplace entirely different. That's, That's its natural environment, isn't it? that's what the Bible says about itself with regard to this life compared to eternity. 1 Corinthians fifteen seventeen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Go find yourself some other religion that's going to give you more practical help And social activism in this life because this religion, this Christian religion is all about being saved in Christ. It's all about bringing you safely to eternity. That's what it's designed to do. And so this whole religion then exists for that moment of death. To give you actual real comfort knowing that you're going to be in the presence of God. And I'll say this, by the way. I I said it's an unfair comparison to say the comfort that it gives in this life. But I'll say this with regard to religion. If it's no good in death, then it's pointless in life also. It's not going to provide you any true, real comfort in, in death. It's pointless in this life. But if it is of real comfort in death, if it's real comfort to sinners. Now look, there may be religions out there that are comforting to righteous people. Because every other false religion has to do with earning your salvation. And if you're righteous... And if you're good enough of yourself to earn salvation, then I'm sure you can find comfort in those religions. But if you're a sinner like me, then you need a religion that can provide comfort to sinners in the moment of death. And there is none other. There is none other besides Christ who can do that. And if it is a comfort to us in the moment of our death... And it is good for a moment-by-moment existence because we don't know when it is. It would be one thing, you know, if we knew it was exactly 25 years from now on a particular moment. Well, we wouldn't have to have reference to that kind of comfort between now and then. But we don't know. That moment may be tomorrow. And that's why we must have this real comfort of real, uh, the reality of what Christ gives us. Blessed are the dead who die in Christ. That's the word that is given to us and that's the real comfort that we have. Believers are blessed from the moment they put their faith in Christ. We know that dead Christians are blessed in a way well beyond that. It is something indeed to be looked forward to. Blessed are the dead who die in Christ. Let us pray. gracious heavenly father lord we are sinners that's our problem we'd like to think we're righteous but we're not there is none righteous no not one none of us can go a single day on this earth without disobeying your righteous holy law not living up to your perfect standards we cannot save ourselves and lord those of us who have been trying no doubt are weary Maybe we're trying to put a bold face on it, but Lord, we pray that there would be surrender, that there would be a recognition of reality that we cannot possibly save ourselves, and the the judgment day is coming. There is a terrible reality in hell awaiting those who still have their sin on them at the moment of death. But Lord, there are untold righteous rewards. For those who put their faith in Christ, no better of themselves, no merit whatsoever. But rather, Lord, claiming the name, claiming the title, claiming the faith of Christ, of receiving that name on their forehead, so to speak, in their faith and in the sealing of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, for those, there is great reward. For the moment, Lord, though there is patience, and we pray, Lord God, that you give us great patience, knowing that trials will come, knowing that there will be persecution in this life, but awaiting in patience the reward that is yet to come. Give us that comfort now and at the moment of our deaths. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.